0: Today's guest needs no introduction to the weather community. We're sitting down with Dr. Louis Uccellini, the Director of the National Weather Service and NOAA Assistant Administrator for Weather Services. Dr. Uccellini has been making major contributions to the meteorological field for more than 40 years and has been a driving force in positioning the United States to be a weather-ready nation. He recently announced his candidacy to become the next president of the World Meteorological Organization and will discuss his future goals for that organization and its members across the globe. Finally, as NOAA prepares for the upcoming U.S. GFS model upgrade, we'll explore what this means for our country's forecasting capabilities and its position within the numerical weather modeling community. Louis, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Marshall. It's a well, joy to be here. Well, it's you know, you're you're one of our favorite guests, and for those that have followed the, the Weather Geeks brand for some time, I, I believe Louie, you may hold the record for the most appearances on the television version of the of the of the show, and it's uh, really ha- ha- glad to have you on the podcast version because we can really dive deep for about forty minutes. So let, let's just go right there. First of all, give us uh, your sort of sort of Reader's Digest synopsis of the how things. Are going in the National Weather Service right now?
1: Well, actually, I, I believe they're going fairly well. Um, of course, we have our we have our challenges that the uh, that Mother Nature puts up in front of us, uh, especially on these extreme events. Uh, but we, um, I think, we're doing really well in terms of uh, the transitions that we put in place uh, four, five, six years ago. Uh, s- still building those out and um, positioning ourselves um, very nicely with respect to uh, building a weather-ready nation and connecting forecasts with decision makers at every government level. Um, but there's still much more to be done. Um, and um, but I believe we have a solid foundation to be working from.
0: Yeah, well, let me. Let me. I mean, I'm going to kind of sort of use this opportunity to sort of tee off on something you mentioned, because a- as we're taping this, the U.S. is, particularly the Great Plains, has been facing some pretty severe weather. Uh, there was a lot of talk about an uh, outbreak uh, out in the Great Plains region on the Monday of the week that we're taping this. Uh, there, uh, you know, I've been pushing back on this because I think the, the what folks at the Weather Service and SBC have done a great job. But how do we how do we deal with sort of the, you know, this sort of modeling and forecasting of the sort or severe weather outbreaks and couple that with messaging that doesn't lead people to say, oh, that was a bust if it doesn't reach certain thresholds or criteria that people have in their mind. I mean, what are your thoughts on that as a leader in this field?
1: Yeah. So what what we're um, facing, I believe, are predictability issues at every scale of, of the forecast we make. I, I know we we talk about uh, predictability issues in the extended range, Um and, and certainly that comes into play as decision-makers want to make decisions further out in time to prepare uh, an area of the country, a state, right down to the local level. You need more lead time to do that, so um, they, they work within the uh, context of uh, decision you know, days four, five, six, and seven um, that clearly get into um, the range of predictability issues that you know, we still are, um, we all understand and are still doing a lot of work on. But when you get down to the mesoscale and you're talking about systems that are have a background state and are forced by larger scale dynamics, uh, but are manifested in such ways that even three hours, two hours, and one hours before the event, things happen uh, in the vertical structure of the atmosphere, for example, that can have a major impact on on the nature of the storms, whether they predict uh, whether they produce a family of tornadoes, um, or they produce a very heavy rainfall, or they produce both, and uh, that was the situation that I believe uh, we were facing this week, and um, uh, we uh, did get the very heavy rains um, over an area that was forecast, and we're seeing the ramifications of that. Uh, even today, even as we prepare for the next round of storms. Uh, but the family, the family tornado type of outbreak, the largest-scale tornado outbreak, did not manifest itself. Um, and, and we're thankful I've already for that. seen some, um, <laughs> some uh, uh, discussions on the uh, email groups that uh, suggest that the vertical structure of the atmosphere didn't quite map out um, in a necessary way. Uh, having stated that, um, It's very clear that people do have to prepare for the worst when there's this possibility um, and hope for the best. And in this regard, um, uh, we dodged the bullet here with respect to the major tornado outbreaks. Now, there were some significant tornadoes, and there was a tornado emergency um, up in northern Oklahoma, for example. But the fact is, uh, the the system didn't manifest itself the way uh, it was expected even a day or two before.
0: Yeah, but I I agree. But I think that uh, there were several tornadoes and several hazardous events, particularly rainfall, which often gets undersold by the public and uh, those that are watching these events. So uh, it, it was clearly sort of a multi-tiered uh, hazard event. And so I, you know, I want to sort of send kudos to you and your colleagues at the Weather Service. I think every meteorologist with credibility looked at that day, uh, even going into the day, and, and perhaps didn't sort of anticipate the strength of the cap there. Uh, sort of eroding some of the sort of warm sector convection that, that was expected. But I, I think the, the level of alert was certainly appropriate. So just I want to send kudos. I, I'm, I'm talking with Dr. Louis Uccellini, who's the director of the National Weather Service and a good friend of the Weather Geeks podcast and Weather Geek show. Let me give you a little of Louis's background before we continue the conversation. Uh, he's got a Ph.D. from the University of we- uh, Wisconsin-Madison, uh, master's and bachelor's degree from that university also. He became the 16th director of the National Weather Service on February 10th, 2013. He was also the president of the American Meteorological Society, the AMS, from 2012 to 2013. And he was the director of the National Center for Environmental Prediction for 14 years before he became the head of the National Weather Service. Accomplished scientist, over 70-plus peer-reviewed articles, and has been a driving force behind the Weather Ready Nation, uh, which I think is important, something that you look to move forward in your candidacy for the WMO, which I want to talk about a bit later here. But is the weather-ready nation, are we a weather-ready nation at this point, Louis, or where are we in that process?
1: Well, we're more weather-ready um, um, as a nation um, than we were six years ago. Um, uh, I believe very strongly that the connections that we've made, um, and and we continually work on this. Uh, with the emergency management and water resource management communities and other public safety officials um, throughout the United States has certainly, um, uh, it, 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 that has evolved, it has developed in a very productive way, and um, we're seeing results of that uh, and getting testimonials back from the emergency management community in terms of how that is working. So. The point is, there's a there's a developing trusted relationship between uh, the National Weather Service and and these officials, but even more lar- uh, in a in a in a larger sense between the weather enterprise and and the public safety officials. As we have uh, been working hand in hand with private sector meteorologists, with the academic communities, with the research communities, in moving this forward. And, and we're seeing um, now a much more collaborative approach, not only within the weather service uh, and within the components of the weather service, but within the weather enterprise as we approach these events. You just made a comment with respect to every meteorologist worth their salt. There was a lot of collaborative activities going on um, within the meteorological community uh, working towards this r- most recent uh, extreme event. Uh, And and it was a very complicated event. It's the first time, I believe, that we had extreme uh, uh, rainfall prediction out and extreme uh, severe weather prediction out overlapping over the same area at the same time. It took an amazing amount of collaboration uh, to make that happen and to make people aware in a very consistent way of the potential for these systems. So we're we're certainly making progress, Uh, I think, I believe very strongly it's making a difference in terms of our preparation for these extreme events. And I'm talking about our country's preparation for these extreme events. And, and uh, we're working in partnership with the folks who actually have boots on the ground, you know, saving lives. So um, I'm feeling really good about it, but I, I will emphasize again, we still have a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, I I hope you're still there. I think you are. But we we also are seeing something happen in the National Weather Service. And I think it is a part of the whole Weather Ready Nation uh, initiative Uh, as we see extreme weather events, as we now are transitioning to the hurricane season. I, I know there's a bit more emphasis on on impact based forecasting or impact based decision support. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that?
1: Yes. So, we have uh, what we call impact-based decision support uh, services. That's the linchpin between what we normally think of in terms of weather forecasting and warning uh, being based uh, on, f- on the physical principles, but also then connecting to decision-making uh, in a very productive way uh, through this impact-based decision support services. And what that means is that, first of all, uh, we... We form partnerships with the folks who are actually uh, uh, preparing for these events, um, working on the ground, first responders working on the ground to ensure that communities are are ready and responsive to the potential for the extreme events. So you got to practice, practice, practice with these folks because we have to understand their decision making and, and the key decision points. While at the same time, they understand what we can bring to the table in terms of uh, forecast um, and and um, with with the uncertainty built into that discussion. So, like I, I indicated before, if if they're making decisions that days six, five, and four, as they prepare for an event, there's clearly forecast uncertainty that we have to communicate as well, and build into their their risk preferences um, um, uh, in terms of. What you know, how far they're willing to go uh, based on those forecasts. So, um, it's a it's a very um, uh, iterative uh, kind of process. Uh, but the bottom line is, we're forming trusted partnerships uh, with the emergency management community and the water resource management communities um, that then allow them to prepare for an event, knowing uh, what what the uh, certainty or uncertainty of the forecast is in making their decisions accordingly and i can give you an example of how that how that's working in the hurricane domain space but uh, i'll i'll wait on that
0: We are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Louis Uccellini, the Director of the National Weather Service and the NOAA Assistant Administrator for Weather Services. Uh, Louis recently announced...
1: That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from
0: the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes.
1: Talk about starting the morning right.
0: Just like customizing
1: your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
0: This is candidacy for the World Meteorological Organization or the WMO and I want to have a very in-depth conversation on that Uh, and the beauty of the Weather Geeks podcast is is we have time to do it without feeling rushed so I I will get to that discussion in a moment. I want to pivot the discussion now before we talk about your WMO candidacy to the new GFS model. I I know this is something that has been very important to you and very important to the agency very important to the nation Uh, there was a new release postponed in late February uh, uh, due to some challenges and some feedback related to the forecast. Can you give us the latest update on the new GFS model? What were some of the issues you were trying to troubleshoot, and when can we ex-
1: expect it to be operational? Uh, yes. Uh, what, what, we, um, uh, what we encountered um, back in the uh, January-February timeframe was, um, was actually a very productive uh, interaction that we had with a large number of users, who are helping us evaluate this new model, um, even as we prepare for the implementation. We were uh, ready to go into our 30-day test uh, before implementation. And based on the interactions we've had um, over the past year, uh, we, got, we got feedback uh, with respect to um, you know, cold biases in the lowest portion of the models. And um, we made a decision uh, to postpone uh, the the 30 day test basically stopped the process until we could um, uh, get a better understanding of what was going on in the boundary layer and work to um, uh, uh, the the improvements in uh, before we were ready to implement. So the feedback was very important to us. Uh, we heard uh, what uh, a segment of the user community was saying. Um, and uh, we basically postponed the implementation. We've reiniti- we have went through, um, uh, since the beginning of the year, identified some of the issues, uh, been able to address a portion of the problems, and were uh, ready to start the, uh, the 30-day clock again as a fr- final step in the implementation process. We uh, are, in fact, at the front end of that, And we're working uh, now with a schedule that would have us implement the model on um, June uh, 11th. Um, And uh, we're feeling uh, pretty good about that. One um, step that we've uh, um, taken is to uh, decide to continue running the old version of the GFS in, in parallel mode until September.
0: Okay, so you will have sort of both running. I know you did that uh, during the evaluation phase, but it's sort of the it's going to flip flip in a sense that you'll you'll bring the new one on, online or still keep the older one around. Now, what uh, speaking of modeling, I mean, you, you and I have talked about this in the past. There's this sort of sort of high, in my case is Kate, in my perspective, somewhat overblown sort of model war discussion that goes on among users and weather enthusiasts in social media about the Euro versus the American model. Uh, I mean, uh, statistically, we know the European model is better in terms of some of the evaluation, evaluation metrics that are used in the weather modeling community. But is there a best model and does it matter? I mean, I know that you use them all anyway, your forecasters use all of the models and we certainly want our model to be on par or even, even the best model if possible. But what is your take on all of this Euro versus American model stuff?
1: Well, um, First of all, uh, we do have to recognize that um, the, the European model, um, the medium range model, uh, which I think everybody's referring to, yes, um, does score best uh, with um, a number of the standard uh, verification scores. And I'm certainly uh, uh, aware of that. And it, and it serves as a, as a goal uh, to uh, continue, as we continue to improve our, our own models. Uh, having stated that, uh, there are, um, you, you had already noted it, our forecasters use all the models. We have access to our own, of course, the Navy, the Canadian, the European, the UK Met. Uh, we use all of those. And increasingly, uh, the forecasters, as as we uh, attempt to um, forecast for extreme events further out in time, um, we are uh, increasingly... Uh, using the ensemble versions of those models. And um, I think that's really important to understand that uh, the, we're looking at an envelope of solutions um, as as we march forward. And uh, the, uh, the real uh, issue now is being able to extract the most likely so, uh, solution from those ensembles. And it's actually pretty important that the models not only have a variability that we can, uh, we can rely on and understand um, so that we can uh, then set our systems up to, a, uh, in our attempts to, uh, statist- in a statistical fashion, extract the best forecast. Uh, so it's really important that people understand that our forecasters uh, have access to these wide range of models and they use this input uh, in, um, in a collective way uh, in an attempt to extract the best forecast, which is one of the reasons during the hurricane season, we're especially uh, emphasizing, um, you know, follow the, the official forecast, which in many cases turns out to be the best forecast um, rather than chasing a single run of a single model system back and forth, uh, which we see all have their pluses and minuses uh, for particular events as as we approach um the time that that event is actually impacting uh so um we we are always striving to improve our models uh we run a much broader suite of models for many more applications than the European center model uh but uh clearly uh we want to improve our models and 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 live up to the uh, standards that we believe we can attain and what i
0: what i would also add to the listeners is the american uh, system doesn't just have one model. You always talk about or hear people talk about the American model. Uh, that's, that's our synoptic or large scale model but there there are other models, the NAM and the HRRR which is sort of a high resolution model in the zero to 24 hour time frame and, and others. So it's important to keep this model in context and perspective even as the European model shows statistically to be slightly better than the American GFS. The American GFS is still a world class model. It still does a good job. It still beats the European model sometimes. So I, I want to make sure we understand that, and, and I know in 2018 there was a significant upgrade to the U.S. computers. Uh, how, that that really is one of the driving factors in 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 forecast
1: improvement. Is that right? So that's an important point. Um, it I always say it takes three components to uh, um, to improve to actually have a real time. Uh, modeling system and to uh, continually improve those models. So you need global observations. You need uh, the science of data assimilation and modeling. That's that's point two. And point three is you need the computers to be able to run those models on. And at, uh, in 2013, when I took over, uh, we could not fit uh, like the HER, the HER model would not fit on the computing system we had and, and that was one of the biggest demands uh, on the Weather Service was to operationalize the high-res rapid refresh. Um, we uh, uh, were uh, lagging um, not only in the uh, resolution aspect of our global model, but uh, in the data assimilation as well. Um, uh, we never did get to 40 var, um, as an example. Uh, we made a decision um, in the early part of this century to focus on multi-model ensembles across the whole spectrum of our applications. Uh, We couldn't fit both on the computers. Now we're in a position where our computing capacity is big enough where we can uh, start looking at this, but we have a computer uh, procurement uh, for our next 10 years uh, coming up, and we have to factor in uh, all of the above, all right? Highest resolution ensembles, the data assimilation that we need, Uh, We have to be positioned from a computing perspective to be able to deal with the entire uh, modeling system um, so that the advances that are being brought to us by the larger research community um, uh, can be, uh, in fact, implemented. Speaking of, of
0: that, um, I, I we had, uh, we talked with Neil Jacobs recently for a weather geeks podcast episode. And, and I'm not sure which one of your episodes will actually air first. So I'll give a little context, but, uh, we, we talked about this sort of Epic, uh, which is being talked about or discussed the sort of community, uh, community input into the model development. Tell us about, tell us about your perspective on that and, and how we're going to move forward with that.
1: Well, the, Neil's. um, um, Concept for Epic is, uh, is uh, based on broadening our outreach uh, to the larger research community in a way that's uh, not only efficient for us uh, from, a, from a R2O perspective, but efficient for the research community so that they don't have to spend a lot of time uh, dealing with um, downloading models uh, for their use, et cetera, et cetera, that there's an infrastructure that, that facilitates that and uh, at the same time would facilitate scientific advances and at the same time uh, would uh, facilitate the uh, R2O process, the research operations. So this is a very important uh, component um, of um, enhancing our abilities uh, to um, not only reach out to the research community, the larger research community, but to actually in a functional way be able to... um, uh, support the research that they're doing, and uh, be the benefit of that in a, in a more efficient way that would accelerate the research to operation. So, I, I think this is a very important step. Um, it it has to um, account for the um, the our work on the global modeling system and improving that but also making our uh, attempts to uh, model on a very fine scale, um, which has been predominantly done with regional models, to make that process more efficient as well. So we are working with NCAR in terms of uh, the basic uh, com- uh, modeling system infrastructure um, so that we can start looking at you know, the whole system um, and what needs to be done Uh, to be able to run not only operationally but to support the research community in a way that that satisfies the needs of both sides. So it's a very ambitious time for this outreach and uh, really looking forward to us getting this uh, solidified and, and making it work for us.
0: Now, one part of the equation or the three uh, pillars of the stool that you mentioned is observations, global observations. Um, uh, how satisfied have you been? I, I, I'm guessing the answer is going to be quite satisfied. But how satisfied have you been with the sort of uh, capabilities that the GOES-17 and the new generation of uh, JPSS satellites have provided for us?
1: Well, the uh, we've been practicing with the, um, the new... Um, um, polar orbiting satellites uh, for about 15 years now, maybe even a bit longer, um, with respect to um, working with AIRS data and then IASI, the European uh, you know, uh, 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 hyperspectral uh, sounder and IR and, and the advanced um, microwave sounders. And then, of course, we had the SUMI NPP. And then finally, we got the JPSS uh, launched uh, we were ready at day one uh, with respect to those um, um, uh, those capabilities, and we're um, I believe we're benefiting from from those both from an infrared and microwave perspective. Uh, with respect to Go 16 and Go 17, the the the, the changes there are actually fairly revolutionary. Um, you know, we're we're working with um, advanced imagers. Uh, we don't have a sounder in geostationary space, so. Uh, what that means is you're not getting the same kind of dwell, uh, uh, upwelling radiance. Uh, you, you know, you have to dwell on those to be able to extract the signal. But what you do get is very high resolution both in time and space. And uh, we're working with that. Uh, and, and, and one specific area that we're already seeing advances in is the height specification for our wind vectors, which are derived from geostationary. Uh, satellites, so um, th- you know that's that's a work in progress, and, and really looking uh, really looking forward to the potential that I believe is there, um, especially in the wind and, and moisture domain space uh, for for our models. So um, there'll be more to come on that, but um, we're we're certainly excited about about both satellite systems. I, I, you know, the 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 whole GOES system uh, uh, is essential not only to our forecast, but our warnings. And we're clearly seeing advances there um, in many ways, uh, not the least of which is the, uh, the fires and being able to spot these, uh, these fires much more readily and, and get those uh, to decision makers in ways that they can quickly respond. That's all coming from the GOES system. So there's a broad range of applications here, and uh, we're certainly taking advantage of all of them.
0: And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with the head of the National Weather Service, Dr. Louis Uccellini, a friend and colleague of mine I've known for quite a, a while. So it's always a pleasure talking with him. I, I want to talk now about your WMO candidacy, but I do want to get one quick question in before we switch to that. Um, and, and Without getting into the politics and of it all, um, is, is there a real issue with the whole 5G and weather forecasting channel? I think I wrote something on this in Forbes recently. I mean, is, is this something you're really concerned about?
1: Uh, Yes, we are, in fact, Um, and uh, Neil um, uh, Jacobs has uh, been uh, very busy um, on the Hill and um, in other areas to to lay this out. I'll I'll give a a summary of it. Um, In the band that they're projecting, there's a potential, which is in the 24 uh, area, um, there's a potential for that to bleed into the uh, passive microwave um, spectrum. In other words, if there's uh, no bounds or boundaries put on uh, the the wavelengths that they actually want to work in, uh, it could bleed over into the uh, microwave area, which we know is a very important, if not the most important, satellite component into the weather prediction systems. Um, there's been some studies done. Um, I don't think they've been released yet, but it, uh, the studies done by NASA. Uh, which shows a, a significant impact on the quality of the radiances in the passive microwave. And um, from what I could tell, uh, those those uh, uh, that those degradations, if they actually manifest themselves, would basically uh, wipe out about 20-30 years worth of advances in satellite observations. Um, so, um, and and their importance in the models uh, are need to be emphasized. Uh, but we also use those channels um, just just to observe uh, what' you know sustains situational awareness so um, the impacts are real uh, we're uh, still working um, to bring the science and 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 the results to um, uh, to the decision makers and um, uh, we'll see how this pans out but um, we have uh, we've We've indicated uh, that the impacts are significant, and uh, and we've been able to show that through various studies. So um, we'll have to stay tuned to see how this all works yeah, out.
0: Absolutely. I, I do want to now shift because a big announcement you made recently that you are uh, running for – next president of the World Meteorological Organization. So I want to talk about that. Now, tell the, tell the listeners what the WMO is, what its purpose is. I know you've been the uh, permanent representative for the U.S. for the past few years. So tell us, a, give us a WMO 101 for the listeners and, and what your goals are if you're elected as president.
1: Yeah. So the World Meteorological Organization is is a specialized agency of the United Nations. It was one of the first that was actually spun up as the uh, as the United Nations was created after World War II. Um, it 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 provides a a, um, a platform. So we'll use the word platform to uh, ensure that there are standardizations of global observations. Uh, there's there's a Resolution 40 that was eventually passed by uh, the WMO that points to the free and open exchange of data, which has been a very important part of the various modeling centers around the globe, uh, being able to tap into the same data streams um, as they run their global models, as an example. Um, the um, We've worked um, uh, um, climate, um, weather, um, and now water uh, issues. There's a hydrology component uh, um, of the WMO. And um, uh, in every way, uh, we, we work to um, bring the latest advancements uh, to the table through the science part, the Commission on Atmospheric Sciences, the World Climate Research Program, uh, as examples, Um to not only improve the nature of the forecast, but make them relevant to the um, to the world citizens that are becoming increasingly vulnerable uh, to these extreme events, and and we know that that's that's a fact. Uh, we see this through independent analysis uh, being done by the economic community, for example, and the political the world political community. So um, this is the this is the this is the stage that the uh, that the weather services around the world uh, meet discuss uh, agree to um, um, in important ways that allows us to tap into the global observing system that's so essential uh, to our own local forecasts as an example so um, it's a very important uh, organization, and um, uh, I you know, I, I'm I'm interested in in uh, being the president of this organization for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into.
0: Yeah, I know you have. I I know you have sort of three key focus areas that you have put forth. Uh, tell us about those three focus areas that, that are part of essential your your platform or your your campaign uh, narrative.
1: Well, the um the 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 World Meteorological Organization um has um. Uh, decided um with the last congress and 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 we have to understand that the Congress is held every four years it's where decisions are made so four years ago, a decision was made uh to restructure the w m o make it more efficient and more focused on the needs and to allow that to drive the services and the um, um, and and the science uh, that we should be uh, looking at um i've done this is something that I've uh, uh, had to work through in the various organizations I've led within the United States, including the Weather Service. So um, I'm very adept at that. And the reason I've, I feel that this is important is that we could position the WMO uh, to become a more efficient and agile organization to be looking at these, ex- these challenges that we're facing with extreme weather, water, and climate events and the linkage and, and to break down the stovepipes, to look at the linkages amongst these various components uh, to move us forward, not only from a science perspective, but most importantly, from a service perspective to address uh, user needs around the globe. So this is a challenge. It's going to be a challenge for the, for the next president to take this restructured organization and make it work. Uh, for the needs that we're seeing around the globe uh, in the face of uh, uh, increasing extreme events. And um, uh, and to make sure that it works for us as well, um, we have to sustain the, uh, the observation uh, uh, framework. We have to um, tap into the new observations that are being made available, um, not only from government sectors, but from the private sector, and, and work with all of these in a very efficient way uh, uh, to advance our services to uh, folks in the United States and around the globe.
0: Yeah, I think this is very important, and uh, I want to uh, give you a kudos for sort of stepping up and and wanting to engage a, at the WMO level because, you know, weather and climate have no boundaries. I mean, uh, even though you're the head of the, the U.S. Uh, weather Agency, you uh, the observation suite that goes into all of the models, for example, and uh, other science ideas um, are shared. So uh, we do not do weather in isolation in the United States. So it's important that our our, our key leaders like yourself are involved. Uh, In this last few minutes that we have, I just want to kind of go into a lot of different areas here in this last five or so minutes. I'm I'm noticing the Weather Service has been hiring quite a bit lately. Uh, It seems that you're staffing up, bringing in some uh, younger talent into the agency. Um, uh, What's your perspective on sort of the human capital in the agency right now?
1: Well, we, um, we, you know, we've had challenges that we have had to face over the past six, seven years um, in terms of just general hiring people uh, into NOAA and and we're part of NOAA into the National Weather Service. Uh, We made a decision about a year, year and a half ago uh, to uh, really focus on the entry level uh, um, meteorologist and hydrologist. And so we've made a big push on that. And um, we've, we've made uh, the whole, we, we've contributed to making the hiring process more efficient. Uh, we've done things internally to the Weather Service uh, to um, really focus on a, a more rapid um, um, hiring of, of these uh, new. Um, Students coming out of the universities, uh, meteorologists coming out of uh, the services, um, you know, all of the above uh, to increase the inflow into uh, the National Weather Service. Uh, we have, we're seeing a tremendous demand of, of, uh, for, and, and opportunities here. We have about, you know, 150, 200 applicants coming in uh, uh, and, and being considered per position. It's really, really phenomenal. So the talent is there. Uh, we've now been working to bring them in. And you're right, we're, uh, we, we actually turned a corner last year in 2018 that we brought in more people into the Weather Service than lost uh, to, uh, to retirement, you know, separation from federal services. So, um, and that you know, the whole wave of retirements is, is for real. That's part of the issue that we're facing. Um, but uh, I think we're in a good spot with respect to our system, We've just streamlined the categories of meteorologists within the weather services. There's five through 12, the grade structure, uh, that will also help, I believe, uh, bring in uh, more people um, uh, more rapidly, um, as well as address uh, promotion p- potentials for the folks in the weather service. So um, we're really uh, looking forward to that. We're right on the front end of, of that change. So we're working really hard uh, uh, to focus on our needs uh, for our next generation workforce.
0: Yeah, that, that, that's important. As someone that very much interacts with young scholars coming out of universities, I, I'm really pleased to see that. And it's good for the nation, too. I know the federal workforce from when I was there was aging, and so definitely good to replenish it. Uh, Louis, one of the things that's happened is that there's really more of a public-private partnership in the weather enterprise now. Uh, you know, there, there are companies like Panasonic and IBM that have their own weather models. Uh, there are companies now that are wanting to provide satellite data. Uh, and this is all in, in, in consistency with the Weather Forecast and Improvement Act. So uh, briefly tell us about sort of this new world of public-private partnership in weather.
1: Well, for the United States, it's actually um, been a world that's evolved uh, as long as I've been um, uh, you know, in this uh, activity, and it's been over 40 years. Um, it's what's happened. Um, I believe, starting in the 80s uh, into the 90s, we've seen a, a, a rapid growth in the private sector, and of course, we had the Academy study in the early 2000s called the Fair Weather Report, which basically advised us to work uh, more as a as a team uh, to. Um, uh, you know, try to recognize the if there are conflicts and and there have been conflicts, but look at the area space that they happen in you know, as a gray space not as a as a line kind of thing, and uh set up the commission within the American Mutological Society um, which uh, could be um, used as uh, as a way of of working our way not only through conflicts but opportunities as they arise. And what we've seen is a tremendous growth in the private sector across the whole value chain, you know, in the observation, central processing, in the United States, forecasting and warnings, um, and uh, and then of course dissemination. There are all, all kinds of ways now of disseminating uh, information with respect to weather. Um, I think this has been a tremendous asset to us. I believe we have the most vibrant uh, public-private uh, partnership in the world. I've I've seen it firsthand. We're always asked um, when we go to the WMO, for example, by member states, how do we make this work? You know, how, how, how you know, the growth of the private sector has been tremendous. Uh, and yet, you know, the weather services remain vibrant. How are we making this work? And the fact is, we have a public safety mission, which we're really focused on with this Weather Ready Nation and IDSS. Um, and at the same time, um, ensuring that our all of our data, all of our information is made readily available. So, if there's a, if there's a need uh, for um, that information getting for getting to other uh, private sector folks who have to make decisions, that there's a private a vibrant private sector that can provide that. And uh, it, for the most part, it's it's working. It can it can it be better? Yes, we we continue to strive to make it better. But um, I believe it's working. And if I might add, within the Weather Ready Nation uh, concept of working with decision makers and weaving ourselves into the whole fabric of decision making right down to the local level, we have something called Weather Ready Nation Ambassadors. We have over 9,300 organizations in that uh, ambassador initiative. Many of those are private sector firms who uh, are working together better uh, in the face of these extreme events uh, in a more collaborative way, so um the whole enterprise is really growing here, and um you know um, i I welcome the role of the private sector in meeting um, many needs that we can't possibly fill so um, yeah. it's 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 it, it's it's really worked out well uh, and we rely on parts of our value chain observations as is as, as a case in point. Uh, the uh, research and tech, uh, technical development areas. Um, there's a strong private sector component now, uh, so uh, we're open to all of the above and making it work for the uh, men and women of the National Weather Service. Here,
0: here, here is here is my last question. Uh, you've led the National Weather Service for quite a while, and I, I think have done an outstanding job. What do you feel are your biggest advancement and your biggest challenges ahead?
1: Well, the biggest advancement is is getting an infrastructure uh, within the Weather Service that allows us to manage uh, to our, um, our, um, what our appropriation language states, what our uh, strategic plan is working towards, uh, what our annual operating plan is doing. So we're managing the resources that we have uh, directed towards a common goal of building Weather a Nation and meeting our mission that our people are, are incredibly dedicated to. So w- since we don't have the distractions that we had in the past, I believe we're making uh, stronger advancements. And I believe the strongest one um, is in the forecast of extreme events and those connections to decision makers um, in ways that we weren't doing before. And uh, we're seeing the, the net result of that um, in in the course of hurricanes, the floods, the severe weather, and the uh, fire weather as examples. Um, so I feel really good that we're, we're seeing advances every day uh, in that particular area. Uh, the biggest challenge is, is that, um, you know, there's there, first of all, I've just laid out a nice rosy picture, but we all recognize the job isn't done yet, and uh, there's still a long way to go. I mean, we, we, can't, we can't promise a perfect forecast for anything. All right, So we, we're always working with uncertainties and how we map those into people's changing risk preferences within an extreme weather uh, event or before extreme weather event uh, with the knowledge it might not pan out exactly uh, in the extreme areas like we, we saw this week with the severe weather outbreak is, okay, well, you have that. What, what are the lessons learned from that? How do we continue moving forward that people will still want to rely on this information because the next event could be extreme, right? So, um, you know, that's a challenge that we, we continue to face. Um, I think the biggest area that we have to continue improving on is our basic infrastructure, uh, especially in the data flow arena um, and the dissemination arena of, our, of, our, um, of all of our products and services. Uh, our, our dissemination system is new. Um, our abilities to manage it and identify the resource needs are relatively new. That was part of the restructuring I was talking about. And we're realizing that the capacity of our system has to be dealt with exactly the same way as the capacity of our computers that run on numerical models. And uh, we, got, we got a way to go here. Uh, so we're really focused on, on that as an example. And that's where we have to end it today.
0: Louie, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's always a pleasure to catch up
1: with you. Thank you for having me, Marshall. Really appreciate being here. I'm
0: Dr. Marshall Shepard, and that's been the Weather Geeks podcast. Remember to subscribe at your favorite podcast location and join us again the next time for Weather Geeks.